Open your Bibles, please, to Jonah chapter 2. We will continue our study of the story of Jonah this morning, and we'll be looking at chapter 2. And just as a brief review of what we did, looked at last time and how Jonah got to this point, Jonah was a prophet of God in Israel, and God had asked Jonah to go to the Gentile city of Nineveh and warn them of God's coming wrath for their sin. But Jonah didn't like this plan. He didn't want God to be compassionate to these people. And so he ran away. He got on a boat and went the opposite direction. And he thought he could run away from the presence of the Lord. God asked him to go east, and so he went west. He thought if he went far enough, he could get away from God's presence. So he gets on this boat and goes out to sea, but God comes after him and brings a storm that disrupted his trip. And so the sailors prayed to their gods and and threw their cargo overboard, but Jonah was sleeping through the storm. And so while the others were struggling to survive, he was sleeping. So he was running from God, and he was disengaged from those around him. But ultimately, as we know, he was thrown overboard when the sailors saw there was no other way to survive the storm. And meanwhile, we left Jonah in the belly of death. A great fish had swallowed him up. And and we noted Jonah's path away from God had been a series of downward choices. He had gone down to Joppa, he went down to the boat, he went down into the bottom of the boat, and then ultimately down into the water. And we see when he finally hit bottom, when he came to the end of himself, he experienced the grace of deliverance. And and the two postures of Jonah that we saw in chapter 1 were running from God and sleeping in the storm. So when he was called, he ran, and when things got tough, he disengaged. And and so life really was all about himself. But here in chapter 2, we see a different posture. He finally wakes up and turns his face to God, and he realizes that the end of the path that he was on is not a good end, and he calls on God, and he gives up on trying to manage his own life apart from God. But the story of Jonah is is bigger than just Jonah. It it also mirrors the story of the history of Israel. And that was part of the intent of this story, to remind the people of Israel that God always intended for the knowledge of his glory to be spread to all the nations. And he intended for the Jews to be that demonstration of his power and glory. But they failed. They either lusted after the idols of the nations around them, Or, like Jonah, they became protective and inward-focused and didn't want the foreigners to participate with them in worshiping the God of heaven. And so God, through the story of Jonah, as well as through the other prophets, is calling his people to repentance and warning them of judgment for their sins, even while he continues to promise to preserve a remnant for future restoration in his kingdom. And so as Israel experienced grace, ultimately through God's preservation of the remnant and keeping his promises to them, and as Jonah experienced grace in the form of a big fish, 
We too experience grace through Jesus, our Savior, who rescues us from our sin and reaches down to us and meets us at the bottom and calls us to trust Him and follow Him and let go of our own agenda and participate with Him in building His kingdom. So that's how Jonah got to this point. And so let's read Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. So we come to this scene in the story. We find Jonah in a very interesting situation. He's composing a prayer in the belly of a fish. Now, I'm no zoologist or ichthyologist, but the people who are are quick to point out this was not a whale, and it's important to them that this is not a whale. Whales, for one, don't swim in the Mediterranean Sea, and they don't have large throats, and and so it couldn't um, swallow a, a person. But there are some species of sharks, which are not whales, that do have large throats, and they could swallow something as big as a whole human. And there's even a story from the the 19th century about a sailor who was swallowed alive by a shark and then recovered the next day from its stomach alive. But the the reliability of that story has has not been uh, firmly established. According to the story, this this guy's skin was, was bleached white from the, I guess, the acids in the fish, and it took him about two weeks to regain his right mind after he came out. But ultimately, I don't think it's really that important to establish whether there are species of fish that can swallow a person whole. Because what the passage says is that God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. So if you do get swallowed by a fish, your chances of staying alive for three days are very slim. And so the point is, this is not a natural occurrence. It's a miracle, and we don't need to necessarily find supporting evidence to to prove that a miracle happened. So Jonah finds himself here in a very unusual circumstance. He's literally facing his own death, and his response is to pray. And so notice who he prays to. The text specifically says that he prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, his God. Now, remember that the sailors were praying to their gods in the storm while Jonah was sleeping. And the last conversation Jonah had with God didn't end well. Jonah took off running. But now Jonah finally wakes up. He realizes he's in a pickle 
or maybe about to become one. And, and so he prays to his God. And, and it, all through chapter one, you were kind of wanting to, to slap Jonah out of his stupidness or his, his blindness. He's, he's running from God. It's like, you know, this isn't going to work out well for you. What are you thinking? And, and now finally, he's awake. He remembers his God. He turns to face God and he prays. And he starts, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And, and you'll notice as you read this prayer, it sounds a lot like the Psalms. And it, it starts in the, the first phrase, Psalm 120 verse 1 says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. And Psalm 30 verse 3 says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So I think the, the observation I would make is that Jonah knew how to pray because he knew the language of Scripture. And in the Psalms and, and Jonah here, I think it teaches and it shows us how to come to God with whatever trouble that we face. Now, certainly David or the other psalmists were never swallowed by fish or necessarily even faced death in a storm at sea. But Jonah was facing these very unique and difficult circumstances, and he prayed the psalms. And so no matter what you're facing, I think that the way that we position ourselves before God and the heart that we bring, that whether it's adoration or frustration or desperation, and the language that we use, those are all illustrated for us in the prayers of the Psalms and other prayers through the Bible. Because prayer is more than just us bringing a list to God. It's bringing the self to God. And as we become familiar with the language of Scripture and pray them to God, those can be ways of equipping ourselves to pray when we face circumstances that we have no other language to talk to God. Because there really is no better option than to use Scripture, particularly when we have no words, or the situation is completely overwhelming. Or, like Jonah, when you find yourself at the bottom, or suffocated by the prison of the fish's belly, you can call out to God, you can call out in your distress, and He will hear you. There's no magic in the words, whichever ones we use, but the key is that we pray from a position that acknowledges that God is God and we are not. And the words of Scripture help to clarify that reality for us. It informs us and it shapes the position that we take before God. But while Jonah here is praising God for delivering him and for answering him, He's still in the belly of a fish. He's still encompassed about with seaweed and fish parts and methane. It's not a pleasant ride on a sailboat that he's taking here. But he realizes that this place, as uncomfortable as it is, is the means to his deliverance. Being in the belly of the fish is better than being outside of it, but neither option is exactly great. And so again, as believers, we kind of find ourselves in the same situation. It's the, the already, but the not yet. Our life in God's kingdom gives us certain blessings and promises now, but it's not a guarantee against future troubles. 
We live in the tension of being a new creation, living by the Spirit, but we're still in a physical body that, that bears the wounds of sin and death. And we must be fighting sin and putting to death sin in our lives. And we know that we, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, as it says in 1 John 3, 2. So like Jonah, we can claim deliverance, and we can hold on to the promises of God. But when, when things get really tough, it's not the present situation that we take comfort in, but the hope for what God has promised in the future. And also the knowledge that what we have now, even though we might hold it in broken vessels of clay, what we have now is better than not having God at all. And that really is the life of faith. It's not a life that has no troubles or that ignores today's troubles. But even while engulfed in the belly of the whale, it sees God's hand of deliverance in the situation while still looking ahead and knowing this is not the end. And there's a song I was reminded of while, while thinking of this. It's a contemporary psalm, essentially, by Casting Crowns. Uh, I will praise you in the storm. But, but some of the words um, really mean a lot to me. It says, I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again, I say amen, that it's still raining. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain, I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. In the chorus, I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands that you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. Some of you are facing storms today. The storm may be so intense, you cannot hear the whisper of God. But your prayer or your posture can be the same as Jonah. In my distress, I called. From the belly of death, I cried. And God hears and he answers. It's the message of the gospel. It's the good news of the Bible. The desperate cry of a helpless person. And God hears and God answers. So throughout this prayer, we see Jonah repeating and expanding this picture of struggle and deliverance, and each round gets a little bit more dramatic. So in verse 3, he repeats this idea, but it becomes more descriptive. He was cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The waves and billows passed over him. But it wasn't just the, the deep water that he was in that distressed Jonah. He realized in, in verse 4 that he was actually getting what he was going after in chapter 1. Remember, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and told him to go to Nineveh, but he rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. And so we talked about how sin is tricky, and it is deceiving, and it will trap you. So Jonah, even though he was the prophet of God, thought he could escape the presence of the Lord. And that's what sin does to you. It messes you up. You cannot see reality. You cannot make sense of what is true. And, and you senselessly pursue things that are illogical. But now, finally, Jonah's eyes are opened. 
When he was sinking into the water, he felt the cold, salty water wash over his head, choking him and cutting off his airway. As he continued the downward journey he had begun when he rose to flee from the Lord. When he started to hit bottom, his eyes opened, his thinking cleared, and he realized maybe God has turned his face away. Maybe he is really getting what he thought he wanted, and God is no longer with him. But in this sense, the story of Jonah is not that unusual. It's not that different from the way our lives are today. It's the story of mankind. If we persist in pursuing sin, if we turn our back on God, if we ignore his call to us, if we are running from God, the end will be separation from God. We will be driven away from his sight. And the physical suffering of hell is one thing, but the mental misery of knowing that God is absent and that there is no hope for deliverance and there is no one to call to for help will only compound that suffering. You will finally be alone and on your own. You see that the lie of the devil is that you can be the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. And he's, he's willing to let you believe that lie, even though you're actually his slave. In demanding your own autonomy and in wanting to be completely in charge of your life outside of the reign of Christ, you are submitting to the reign of the devil. The devil doesn't demand to be first in your life. He just wants to see to it that God isn't. So if he can put God in second place, he's got you. So if it's your business, your financial goals, your family, your social life, your hobbies, your sports team, your right to make your own decisions, if the devil can trick you into making any of those primary, and if the thing of first importance is not loving God and submitting to his word and loving his people, then you're on the same downward path of Jonah. You are fleeing the presence of God. And if that is your path, I pray that God shows you the mercy that he showed to Jonah. Jonah's eyes were opened, and he realized that he was done. He was driven away from God. He was almost out of God's presence. But notice his response. He makes this remarkable claim, "'Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple.'" Now, God's holy temple is where God's presence dwelt on earth. And it really is a testimony to Jonah's knowledge of the God he served. He knew that, as he said later in chapter 4, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So we see this shift in Jonah's posture from fleeing the presence of the Lord and turning his back on God to looking again at his holy temple. And these two postures are really the difference between the sinner and the saint. And the issue isn't so much where you are, but which way you're facing. Jesus said in Matthew 21, he was talking to the priests and elders. He said the prostitutes and tax collectors will go into the kingdom of God before the priests and elders. And the difference was that the prostitutes and tax collectors believed in Jesus and the religious leaders did not. So being respectable and religious does not save you. And being on the other end of the social spectrum does not keep you from being able to turn your face to Christ the Deliverer. So the question is, is Christ your Lord? And are you turned toward him 
or away from him. Now, not every storm that we're in is one of our own making. Sin is within us, but it is also outside of us. And we live in a broken world, and we live with suffering. So whether we reject God's word and turn away from him, or if it's just the reality of suffering that creates the perception of distance from God, the response of faith is to turn our faces and to look to his presence, even in the suffering, especially in the suffering, and he is there. So Jonah goes on in verses 5 to 6 to describe his dilemma in more detail. He's not just going underwater. He's going all the way to the bottom of the ocean. He was fighting weeds that were wrapped around his head. And it says um, in in verses 5 and 6, some translations end the sentence at verse 5 and make 6 a separate sentence, and it depends how it's it's translated from the Hebrew. But it it makes it, um, in, in that reading, it makes it sound like the at the bottom of the mountains, the bars closed on him forever. And so he was, he was locked under these, these gates, or these, he was bolted under these bars at the bottom of the mountain, at the bottom of the ocean. This was a land of no return, and yet he ex- experienced God's deliverance. And then he says it again in verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Sometimes the physical realities of suffering or just the the sheer weight of practical decisions and implications that come with suffering, whether it's a a medical diagnosis or the weight of a difficult or dysfunctional relationships, the, the difficulty of suffering makes it difficult to remember the Lord. But Jonah knew that his present situation and his current feelings, even the near suffocation from the weight of his suffering, was not an indication of God's feelings to him. And the same for us. Our feelings and emotions are not indicators of God's favor to us. And so the call of Scripture is to remember. Remember the Lord. Remember his face. Remember the temple. Remember his presence. The only thing that, God, that Jonah had going for him was his knowledge of God's presence and his confidence in God's mercy. He had no confidence in himself at this point. But he turned his face to God's presence, and he prayed to the Lord. That's the message of the gospel, and that's the invitation to God's kingdom. It's not what we do, but what Christ has done for us that saves us and that delivers us from destruction. But our path to grace was similar to the path that Jonah took. We find ourselves in a place that is completely hopeless, and we are completely helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix the mess we are in. We cannot free ourselves from the bars locking us below the mountains at the bottom of the ocean. And our only hope is the face of Christ. Your only chance at survival is the presence of Christ. He invites you to come after him, taking up your cross to follow him. And so in Jonah's dying, he found God. He remembered God, and he turned his face to God. Christ meets us at our lowest point. When we've done all we can to mess up our lives and flee from his presence, when we turn our face to him, he meets us there. Now, some of us would rather not get to that point. We'd rather come to God on more respectable terms. So it becomes a social question. What are my friends doing or what's expected of me? 
or a moral question, what is the right thing to do? Or maybe an eschatological question, where will I go when I die? And all these may be fine questions to ask, but if in the end you don't ultimately answer the spiritual question, who am I going to worship? What comes first, God's agenda or mine? You may be setting up a false god. And so Jonah warns, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. If we turn to anything other than God for our deliverance, if we trust in anything besides God to bring us ultimate satisfaction, if anything absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, you are turning your back on the one real hope of deliverance and satisfaction that exists. And so Jonah concludes, he will sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving and pay what he has vowed, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, I don't know what storm you're facing today or which of your storms feel the biggest to you, but the question is, can you, like Jonah, turn your face to God in your deepest suffering? Can you remember his compassion and grace even when you don't feel it? You don't have to wait until your life is put together to come to God. You don't have to wait until it feels like he's near to call out to him. Turn to him in your suffering. Trust him even in your pain because he is your deliverer. You will not save yourself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's have a song. Six hundred twenty nine, six hundred twenty nine, just as I am without one plea.